This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. I'm Dr. Chang, and along with Dr. Sue, we will be your co-chairs tonight. It's our pleasure to introduce Dr. Alan Dang this evening. Dr. Dang completed medical school at UC San Francisco. He then went to the University of Connecticut for his orthopedic residency, and then UC San Diego for his spine fellowship. He has been on full-time faculty at UC San Francisco since 2012, and he has his clinical practice at the San Francisco Veterans Medical Center, where he teaches residents and medical students and has mentored students in the UC Berkeley and UCSF Masters in Translational Medicine program. He is a surgeon scientist innovator with several university patents on a wide range of topics, ranging from tissue regeneration using adult stem cells to novel spine implant designs utilizing 3D printed lattices. He is a founder and a co-director of the Center for Advanced 3D Technologies at UC San Francisco, and he is also a founder and a co-director of the Translational Radiology and Surgery Technologies Group at the San Francisco Veterans Hospital. Dr. Dang was awarded a Federal Employee of the Year Award for his work in 3D printing for orthopedic surgery, and he is a co-founder of a venture capital-backed advanced manufacturing startup. He has also served as section editor for the journal titled Techniques in Orthopedics and is part of the North American Spine Society Biologics and Basic Research Governance section. Tonight, Dr. Dang will be sharing his thoughts about treating back pain from the surgeon's perspective. So my name is Alan Dang, and I am a spine surgeon. Uh, as noted that I only see patients at the San Francisco VA and I am involved with spine innovation and implant manufacturing. So a common question patients ask is, does spine surgery work? And I would pause and say, this is not a great question to ask because you wouldn't ask, does medication work? You need to know a lot of the details. Why was the medication given and what was the medication? A medication won't work for everything the same way a spine surgery can't work for everything either. You need to know why was the spine surgery pursued and what was the specific procedure that was performed. And this has led to a challenge between unrealistic expectations versus unrealistic fears. To be fair, unrealistic patient expectations is really unrealistic surgeon advertisements. These kinds of ads were common in airline magazines years ago. But notice, they're telling you what surgery they're going to do, but they don't tell you why. And in fact, the Laser Spine Institute at one point was making more money than Google. And of course, they, they have been shut down. But unrealistic expectations can have real consequences. Dr. Cohen was shot at Johns Hopkins. He survived. And he was shot by the son of a disgruntled patient. Dr. Preston Phillips was shot by a disgruntled patient. And he unfortunately did not live. Should I shoot you first or another doctor first? This genuinely happened to me in 2014. And I didn't do anything wrong. I actually told him, you shouldn't have surgery. Of course, he ended up making that same threat to a psychiatrist and our workplace violence prevention team and federal police took action. Patient got the care he needed. 
and our staff was well protected. But when you talk about bias, this is my number one bias. I'm a spine surgeon. Patients have threatened to kill their spine surgeon when you tell them not to do it. And patients actually have killed their spine surgeon when they were unhappy with the results. So my goals for tonight are really to explain what are the realistic expectations for back pain surgery. And I want you to learn two simple questions you can ask your spine surgeon. And you don't have to wait till the end of the night to get those answers. It's first, am I a textbook patient? And second, for anything that isn't textbook, how does that change the treatment strategy or my predicted outcomes? Now, most patients think of it like this, that spine surgery is the last resort, but it's going to fix things. At first, I'll probably ignore the problem, maybe do some physical therapy. If that doesn't work, I can take some pills, then maybe injections. And gosh, if things really go south, I hope I can get minimally invasive surgery. And I guess in the worst case, I'll have a classic open surgery. But this doesn't work right because you have to know what the problem is. So that's going to be the thing that I'm always going to emphasize. What is the diagnosis? And the reality is that no patient has one problem. They probably have a couple different problems. So what are the diagnoses? So when I see a patient for the first time, I'm talking with them. I'm getting their interview, getting their history. I may ask some very unusual questions. And this, along with my physical exam, helps to establish a diagnosis. Getting a CT or MRI or even invasive studies helps to verify my diagnosis or guide my actual surgical plan. And then I need to really know the patient to risk stratify or risk optimize. We are always thinking about the good of surgery, but also the good of non-operative management, as well as the risks of both of those options. So it's important to think that is there a consequence to delaying surgery? Ideally, we want to have the ideal conditions for surgery, but if there is a consequence to waiting, sometimes you will accept higher risks. This is something like tobacco use. It is always safer to quit tobacco before undergoing spine surgery, but in some cases, you can't wait. But suppose it's okay to wait. Well, what's really important to understand is that you need to know if there is a reliable surgical option available for that diagnosis. If there is a good surgery, yeah, you do follow that plan of trying the simplest things and working your way up to the most invasive. But if surgery is not a good idea, your finish line is actually pain management, including coping strategies. There are times where we know exactly what is going on. We just can't fix it. You have to think of it a little bit like cancer, that we know it's there. We just don't have a cure for it. So it turns out that most spine surgery is elective. That elective doesn't mean unimportant or unnecessary. Elective means you can reschedule a surgery safely. This means you have time to get second opinions. You have time to reschedule your surgery to optimize the risks and benefits, including thinking about things like your post-op recovery. The easiest example is to think about the weather we've been having lately. Imagine your surgery's tomorrow, and it turns out that with all the wind and rain, we're running on backup power the morning of. For an elective spine surgery, you're going to cancel and reschedule for another week. If you have a heart attack and you need heart surgery right away, even though we don't have electricity, we're going to continue with surgery running on backup power. And that's why we have backups. But this is your distinguish, uh, distinction between elective versus emergency surgery. So there's no rush to jump to spine surgery most of the time. The handful of things that are problems in the spine that you might need surgery, even if you're not ready for it, would be things like an infection, a tumor, cauda equina syndrome, or a fracture. 
not all infections require surgery, but if someone tells you that you should get a surgery, you probably should. Same for tumors. Not every tumor needs surgery. Cauda equina is a very specific problem where you have sudden bladder or bowel dysfunction and also sudden saddle anesthesia. And this is caused by, again, an acute or sudden complete compression to the specific portion of the spine known as the cauda equina. And the reason we think of this as an emergency is that treatment delay can result in permanent loss of function. If you get surgery after 48 hours of symptoms, you'll still get better, but it's not quite as good. If you have these problems, but they came on slowly, then you're not under that same type of timeline. So unless someone's telling you that you have cauda equina syndrome, again, there is time to think and plan. And even fractures. Many fractures, such as compression fractures, are treated non-operatively. Some benefit from surgery the same way that some tumors and some infections benefit. So going back to the question, what are the diagnoses? What are the things that we really can fix that we plan for? And as a surgeon, I think about back problems in these categories. Is it a disc problem? Is it a stenosis problem? Is it a problem with the facet joints, the sacroiliac joint, or spondylolisthesis and scoliosis, and then everything else is a big box. And we'll start with stenosis. So Dr. Sue gave a great lecture on the anatomy of the lumbar spine, but just to review, you can think about the spine looking from the back. And if you look at the back of your phone, you've got the cervical spine, which is the neck, the thoracic spine, which is your mid area, and then the lumbar spine, which is your lower back. We can look at the back from the side view. So at the side view, you can see there's the spinal cord, the different nerves and the facet joints. And what we like to use in medicine is this cross-sectional or axial view. where We're looking straight at a cross-section of that spine. So in this picture, the top is your stomach, your bottom of the screen is your back, your feet are coming out of the screen with your toes up in the air and your head is behind the computer screen. The MRI is very similar. Here with the MRI, we're looking at that side view. That black line in the middle is your spinal cord and spinal nerve elements. The white is the cushioning fluid. And then in that cross-sectional view, we're looking at the spine straight on. And that circle that you see in the middle with a couple of dots going from three o'clock to nine o'clock, that is your actual spinal canal. The white is the spinal fluid. And the black dots are the nerves that are in your spinal column that are floating downwards because you're lying flat on your back in the MRI machine. So spinal stenosis is a narrowing of this, any space or tunnel of the spine. The nerves that pass through that stenotic region can be injured. And this is usually a wear and tear problem. On a radiology report or in your chart, you may see the term central stenosis with neurogenic claudication. Central stenosis is the where. Where is that stenosis? Where are you having the pinched nerve? And neurogenic claudication are the symptoms that arise as a result of that pinching. Neurogenic claudication can be back pain, can be leg pain, or can be difficulty walking. This isn't as important as the pattern. The pattern of claudication is a very specific pattern. At rest or at the beginning, you actually don't have a lot of pain. Then you start to walk. Maybe you walk five minutes, 10 minutes, the pain starts to build up. And then at 15 minutes, the pain is absolutely excruciating. And that pain can be the leg, the back, or, or anything else. And what's unique is as soon as you sit down, you take a rest or you lean forward, there's a very rapid relief, often within seconds. Uh, we usually think of it as one or two minutes. 
And that doesn't mean that all of your pain goes away, but gosh, a dramatic difference in the first minute happens. And patients will tell me that when they're having such severe pain, they're ready for surgery, but you know, they sit down and it feels like the whole thing resets itself and it, they feel sort of silly that they were in that much pain. And this is very specific. It's an almost perfect distance, whether it's by time, 15 minutes, or distance that they can walk a certain amount of blocks before they need to rest. One thing that is unique to this is that leaning forward can help. So some patients will say they can only walk five minutes, but if they've got a shopping cart, they feel like they can have a little bit more support and they can walk quite a bit further. And that is because the position of the patient's back is in a, in a way that decreases the amount of pressure that is on that nerve. The exact mechanism of claudication is still not clear. It's mechanical that there are literally pinched nerves, but there are also a number of other things, including vascular issues. Vascular claudication is an overlapping diagnosis. It is almost the same thing as neurogenic claudication. Same pattern of, I'm fine sitting down, I build up the pain, but as soon as I sit down again, the pain goes away. The difference is that your position of your back doesn't change so much. For men with vascular insufficiency, they may notice that when they were young, they had hairy legs, and as they got older, the hair um, in their ankles is starting to, to disappear, and that's because the blood flow to those hair follicles have decreased. Vascular claudication might need vascular surgery. Neurogenic claudication may need spine surgery. Other things that are associated with this are gait disturbance. That means that you're having trouble walking. And patients will say that I feel like I'm drunk, but you know, I haven't had anything to drink. I just don't have that steadiness or that balance, or I'm a little bit clumsy. Half pain in the back of your legs is also pretty common. That it's not quite sciatica-like pain that's shooting down the side of your leg. Your back might not even hurt. But there's just this weird scenario where your legs stop working after a certain distance. And as soon as you sit down or rest, it sort of resets back to normal. And when you're sitting, you feel like you've got great strength and nothing's numb. Everything feels normal. The advanced imaging is really critical. And you may see in a radiology report, central stenosis, hypertrophic ligamentum flavin, epidural lipomatosis. These are just different ways that, that cause these problems. This circle is showing you where the spinal canal is. And this is a normal one. So you have a area that is white. That white is the cushioning fluid. And those black dots that you see in the bottom there are the healthy nerves that are floating downwards. But on the right, you can see that one's tight, that those nerves have bunched up where you can no longer see any of that CSF. It can be easier to see in the side view. On the side, you can see that there's that black line. That's your spinal cord. The white's the cushioning fluid. But the patient on the right has three areas where the spine has been uh, compressed. And this is central stenosis with neurogenic claudication. Thankfully, this thing progresses slowly. Surgery can wait for optimization. And there, again, there's a lot of different things that can cause this. For surgery, there's excellent data showing the clinical effectiveness of surgery compared to non-surgery. And it is truly a great option as long as you're medically healthy enough to get this. Here, looking at pain, you can see the circles are people that had surgery and the diamonds or triangles are the people who went non-op. And you can see that the circles are always higher than the triangles. This means that surgery works. But this dashed line is the humbling part. The dashed line is where you should be if you never had an injury or you never had stenosis, adjusted for age and sex. 
So in the beginning, you can see here at time zero on the left side for body pain, someone's working at 30% of their, their optimal. And if you wait a year, you might get to, you know, maybe about 40, 50%. So even without surgery, you'll get better. Having surgery bumps you up, but no one gets to the 70 plus points that you would get if you never had this problem. That's for pain. This is for function. Same story. The circles are higher than the triangles. Surgery is better than not surgery, but you don't get up to the dashed line. So you're never as good as someone that never had that problem. The surgical plan is really specific. Sort of, it makes sense. It's two steps. You unkink the nerves. And if you remove enough bone that it's your spine is loose, you may need to fuse the spine. But this could be something as simple as a two-hour surgery or something that requires 12 hours of surgery. And it really depends how tight the spine is and what portions of the spine would a surgeon need to work on. So technically, by the literature, anyone who's healthy enough should have surgery. But it's fair to say that statistics underestimate the consequences of complications for individual patients. Even if I told you something is 99% successful, if we do 100 surgeries a year, that 1%, somebody's going to get hurt. And so really, it's very reasonable to start with medications like NSAIDs, the anti-inflammatories like ibuprofen. Do steroid injections to help short-term. While the steroid injection chemically is only acting short-term, there are patients who get longer relief. The example I like to give patients is that imagine you're sleep-deprived. You get an extra hour of sleep. You feel great all day. Mathematically, it was just 60 minutes, but somehow you feel great for the entire day. And so with an epidural steroid, it lasts for a very short period of time, months maybe, but there are patients that see even a year of relief. And then activity modification, which is a fancy way of saying, try not to do the things that hurt. Physical therapy probably won't fix central stenosis. Uh, it can improve your quality of life. And if you have surgery, having done the physical therapy helps you recover more quickly. Along those same lines, for the vast majority of patients, even if you're a little bit overweight, losing weight's not going to help. Um, there are certain diagnoses, epidural lipomatosis being one, that if you are morbidly obese and you do lose weight, it can actually make the difference between needing a spine surgery and not. So this is central stenosis. You're irritating or compressing the trunk of the spinal canal, the center portion. If you just go off to the left or off to the right, you can have what is called lateral rhesus or foraminal stenosis. And you can think of them as being one and the same. So central stenosis has a pattern of it comes on, it goes away very quickly. The location of the pain, not so important. For lateral rhesus stenosis, it's different. This is where location matters. So depending on which nerve root you get irritated, it tells you which pattern of pain you get. And there's certain patterns for the weakness. So if you injure a specific location of your lumbar spine, you will find that you have weakness in certain maneuvers. The L4 nerve root, for example, helps you bring your ankle up. And one of the things that patients see is that if they're walking on the street, they will catch their toe on the curb a little bit more than usual. Don't worry, we all catch our toe foot on the curb sometimes, but if you have an L4 nerve root, it is happening to you all the time. Sciatica is a term we often hear colloquially. Somehow we know that this is where you have that pins and needles pains that shoots down the side of your leg. 
the sciatic nerve is an actual nerve comprised of a couple of the different nerve roots. And you can imagine that it's the L4, L5, and S1. And if you look on the right side, that sort of gets the side of your thigh. So again, it's following the path of a specific trajectory. Nerve root irritation is a specific location or a specific motion that you have abnormalities in. So why do the nerves get irritated? Well, you can have the bone spurs in the area of the lateral recess or bone spurs in the foramen. And this is a wear and tear problem. There isn't a single reason that you can think of why it started. It can feel better if you sit or lean forward, tends to worsen if you arch your back backwards, and it unfortunately tends not to get too much better on its own. It's a wear and tear problem. And just like a car tire, it can only wear down. You can have the nerves getting irritated from the disc itself herniating or bulging. And this actually tends to be after a bending, twisting, or lifting injury. Patients say that they have horrible pain the very day of surgery. And this is because there is both an injury and also a chemical reaction to that injury. It improves somewhat afterwards. And the difference is that this is, makes sitting is actually more painful and you might actually feel better standing up. It actually tends to improve with time, more so than bone spurs with arthritis. And most importantly, it's not one or the other. You can certainly have combinations of both. And so I've mentioned the disc. So even though we know that stenosis, often talked about as bony stenosis, is a fancy way of saying irritated nerves, well, it turns out that the intervertebral disc can irritate nerves. So if you have a lumbar disc herniation, again, the science says that, quote, everybody should get better with time. If you have surgery, you'll have more improvements. And if you have surgery, your improvements is faster in the initial year. Looking at that same quality study, you start pretty poor performance, a lot of pain, and then by the end, you're feeling much better. The circles are always higher than the triangles. Surgery is working, but no one gets to that true standard. So again, adjusted for age and sex, you don't get as good even with surgery. And the same thing is true for function. So the perfect surgery for disc herniation doesn't get you back to normal. You can sort of see that you get much closer than the first one looking at stenosis. And this is one reason why maybe it's okay to treat many of these non-operatively. Generally, as a surgeon, we tend to be more of an advocate for surgery if you have weakness, and we tend to take a more relaxed stance if you just have pain. And part of it is that we do expect the pain to improve. A reasonable algorithm, if you just had a disc herniation, again, you know why it got injured, is to try six weeks of non-operative care, physical therapy, or core strengthening. Sometimes it may be appropriate to take certain pills, sometimes not. You could get an epidural steroid injection to decrease the inflammation around that. And if nothing works, then you should consider surgery. We see how intravertebral discs can cause kink nerves, and it turns out that spondylolisthesis and scoliosis can as well. So what is spondylolisthesis? Well, the way you want to think about it is you think about the side, a side view of your spine. What you can do is you can divide the spine in half and then divide that in half again. And then you want to see if there's a slip in the alignment of the two. Sometimes you hear this called a slipped disc, but it's actually the bones that slip. And this is grade zero. This is perfectly normal. 
If there's a slip of about 25%, we call it grade one, 50% grade two, 75 grade three, 100% is grade four. And there actually is a grade five where the spine is essentially dislocated. And that is called spondyloleptosis. But remember what I said, that it's about irritated nerves. And here we see two different patients. The one on the left is much worse. That slip is really bad, but the spinal canal is open. But on the right, that slip is a lot less, but it happens to move in the exact wrong position that causes that other person on the right to have a narrowed spinal canal. So for spondylolisthesis, where the spine is out of alignment in a front-to-back motion, um, undergoing surgery has very good results. But the same theme, circles are higher than the triangles, but you still don't get to your age match uh, and sex match norms. So you get maybe to about 75 to 85% of someone that never had that injury. Without surgery, you're still a little bit worse, but notice in every case, two years after you had the original diagnosis, you're still better. And the spinal fusion may be needed if their spondylolisthesis shifts. So maybe it's a grade one, but if you lean forward, it becomes a grade two or something like that. If there's any motion, you need to really strongly consider a fusion. Scoliosis can also cause nerve root problems or stenosis. What is scoliosis? This is now a curvature looking straight on. Now, what's important is that the neck at the top is fine. The pelvis at the bottom is fine, but the curvature happens internally. If someone is wearing loose clothing, you wouldn't even notice it. This is a very complex problem. And the difference for scoliosis is besides pinched nerves, you can stretch or tension nerves causing you problems as well. I would say that straightening the spine is one of the most complex surgeries in modern spine surgery. You can have multi-day stage surgeries where you add it all up and it's 24 hours worth of surgeries divided over three days or surgeries where you have multiple teams working simultaneously and it gets done in 12 or 18 hours. Is this a textbook problem? Even for a very skilled community-based surgeon, probably not. At an advanced spine care center like UCSF, this is actually a very common diagnosis, but it still doesn't mean that you're a textbook patient. This is one of the most common problems that the community surgeons refer to UCSF, and each patient has to have an individualized plan. So I've shown a little bit that stenosis is irritated nerves. The disc can irritate the nerves. The abnormal curvature can irritate the nerves, but these aren't entirely in blue. Blue means that surgery is a good idea. So what are the parts of a disc or parts of a scoliosis that we don't really treat that well with surgery. So an intervertebral disc that can be a problem that can be reliably treated with surgery are a couple of things. So one, if the disc bulges, hits the nerve, then that can cause some leg pain or weakness. That's a nerve root problem. We can usually help. If your disc is bulging in such a way that it causes central stenosis and you have that pattern of neurogenic claudication, yeah, we can probably help. The disc can also lead to spondylolisthesis, which leads to back and leg pain. So going back to here, the intervertebral disc and the spondylolisthesis interact. So how does that work? So imagine here we have a side view and the axial view. And this one, I have it rotated. So the left is the front, the 
uh, in the left picture, the left is the front, the middle of your screen is the back, and then you can see the normal side view. The orange are your nerves and the green is your disc. What happens with disc degeneration is that your disc collapses, so it is not as high. And what you see is on the right, it causes the bone, the bony tunnel where the nerves exits, that's the foramen, starts to irritate and pinch that nerve. These discs, just biologically and mechanically, when they collapse, they tend to push back backwards. This is the disc bulge. The disc bulge tends to push into the spinal canal. It doesn't go the other direction. And you can see that here, how that bone is there. As that disc is not as healthy, then the way that that disc connects to the bone is sort of impaired. And that can lead to the sliding. That's the spondylolisthesis. You can see here that that nerve really is going to get stretched. It's almost like a cigar cutter. And from the top-down view, you can see how those nerves really can get pinched. In surgery, we can sort of correct that. And here you can see if I can restore the spinal alignment with an intrabody cage, an implant, I can suddenly increase the amount of space that is available for those nerves to travel. But that's the nerve, sorry, the disc affecting the nerve roots, the things that are going down to the legs. The disc itself has pain fibers and the disc itself has been injured. And this is where you can do some fusions for back pain. You can do some disc replacements for back pain, but the predictability of the outcome is poor. So here is central stenosis. You're affecting the spinal canal. Here is that lateral recess or foraminal stenosis. You're affecting the branches as the nerves leave the spine to go down to your legs. The disc itself has nerves, and these are the ones that we less predictably can treat. When we think about scoliosis, there are complex pain patterns. Having this misalignment of your spine is going to put a lot of strain on the concave parts and a little bit of stretch on the convex parts. And so as you straighten out your alignment, you will feel better. The back pain gets better. But these discs are all injured. And so the back pain coming from the disc, that is less predictable in terms of improvement. So blue is good. We can treat it with surgery. Red, we understand what's going on. We can't treat it with surgery. The next on your list is the facet joint. So the question, blue, red, it's more complex. So here's central stenosis. We know that. Lateral recess, foraminal stenosis, we know that. Here's the facet joints. And in real life, these things are a centimeter apart, but they're fundamentally different problems that are all right next to each other. So facet arthritis is facet wear and tear. Now, just because you have arthritis on an X-ray or CT doesn't necessarily mean that you have a problem. But there are certain patterns, and this pattern is that bending forward is helpful, leaning back hurts, that's extension. But more importantly, if you push in the middle of your back, it doesn't hurt. But if I or a friend were to push on your back just a little bit to the left or right, about an inch, uh, it's gonna hurt a lot. And this is the area that you would see. This is the facet joint. Now, blue means surgery is good. Red means surgery is bad. I call this green. And the reason is that isolated facet pain is rarely treated with surgery. Yes, there is surgery. Yes, surgeries are advertised. But in my opinion, the innovations in non-surgical interventions, like a facet injection or an RFA, which is where you burn or ablate the nerve, it actually works pretty well. 
if you have facet pain from scoliosis, when you correct the curvature, that facet pain will go away. If you have facet pain and no scoliosis, this is the one where if you do a fusion, either of the intervertebral disc or the facet fusion, it sometimes works, it sometimes doesn't. It is less predictable. Doesn't mean that it doesn't work. It's just less predictable. And then the next in this category of the categories of diagnoses that we can treat is the sacroiliac joint. And thankfully, this is in blue. We know a lot about this, and there are good treatments. So the SI joint is where the spine connects to the pelvis. There's a mismatch in the way that this joint is made as opposed to your elbow or your shoulder. And this mismatch leads to degeneration. And the weird part is that we all have it. As soon as you're about 30, if you were to do an MRI of the SI joint, you probably would be able to see some signs of degeneration. What we don't understand even today is why some people with degeneration feel just fine and some patients with very early degeneration feel really bad. And so this is one of those things that a CT or MRI is not that helpful. We don't fully understand this yet. And the hard part is actually figuring out this diagnosis. If you look at the companies making implants or you know this handout, do you have SI joint pain? And these bullet points are very vague. They apply to everything that I've talked about this evening. Lower back pain, sensation of lower extremity pain, pelvis pain, hip pain, leg instability, disturbed sleep, disturbed sitting, pain going from sitting to standing. There are so many different things that can cause this, even hip arthritis. Probably the difficulty sitting is the most characteristic part of uh, SI joint pain or pathology. Most of the time, if you have arthritis of any sort of the hip or of the back, sitting down is pretty comfortable. People with a disc herniation sometimes feels that disc sitting, uh, sitting is painful, but with the disc herniation, the pain is more in your back. And with the SI joint, your pain tends to be in the buttocks uh, when you are sitting. And, but again, as the picture shows, it can travel down the legs and looks just like sciatica, except it's a different problem. We can do all sorts of exam tests in the clinic. And even then, it's only about 76% specific or accurate, even if you've got three positive findings. So the exam isn't reliable. The MRI and CT aren't so helpful. It may guide me in terms of once we've decided to do surgery, how to do the surgery. But like I said, anybody over 30 is going to have abnormalities, and we're clearly not doing this surgery on everybody. And so it turns out that unlike the other problems I discussed, where an MRI, a history, an exam is probably good enough, for the SI joint, our most reliable test is actually an invasive test. The way that we make the diagnosis that you have SI joint pain is we have someone like Dr. Chang or Dr. Su place a needle into that SI joint under x-ray guidance, inject some local anesthetic, just like you would get at the dentist, and then we ask you. Did that help or not? And if it helped and it worked short term, then we've made the diagnosis. We know that if we block the pain nerves and pain fibers in the SI joint, you feel better. And if you need that happens, it turns out surgery works surprisingly well. It's about 85% successful. There are nine different level one evidence studies to show these outcomes. Again, once you have made the diagnosis. If you look at this, there are good results even to six-year follow-up. Patients starting 
uh, with uh, 8 out of 10 pain end up close to 2 out of 10. Uh, this here looked at denervation, which is the dotted lines. Those dotted lines um, will show that if you burn the nerves. In this study, they just um, burned the nerve once, and then they saw what happened. In actual clinical practice, at that 12-month mark, you could get the burning done a second time. But surgery clearly has the best outcomes. But along those same themes, you end up with 2 out of 10 pain, not 0 out of 10. Even with perfect surgery, no one achieves zero pain. And if you look at that curve, you feel great two years after surgery, but that pain score is starting to creep up by year six. And then, of course, undefined low back pain. You have to have a diagnosis before undergoing spine surgery. The idea of exploratory spine surgery does not work. So what's the summary? Spine surgery is complex and confusing. You have central stenosis, you have lateral recess stenosis, and you have facet joint pain. But wear and tear doesn't follow the borders that we draw in textbooks. I can't think of a single patient where they truly just had one problem. As you wear and tear, it's going to affect a couple of different things. So if you want to know if spine surgery works or not, you need to know why the spine surgery was pursued and what was done. So if someone asks me, does spinal fusion work? I need to ask, why was the fusion done? Fusion that is done for pure back pain is less predictable than, say, a fusion to correct a spondylolisthesis. It's the same exact surgery when it comes to cutting and sewing, but one works, one is less predictable. Does back pain surgery work? Sure. Some components of back pain have predictable treatment outcomes, but not all. And again, even the best surgery can't make you as healthy as somebody that never had surgery. And then the last part are what I call patient-specific factors. We need to consider that. Surgeons don't treat all patients identically based upon an MRI. And it sounds bad or it sounds evil, but no, it's, it's really important that we don't treat patients identically. So I've already said that no one really has one problem. You always have a couple of different things because they're so close to each other. And so imagine you have a spine that has three problems, three diagnoses. We're 100% sure these are the three problems. Now imagine the patient's 90. So what is that? Maybe you say, okay, well, I understand someone 90 can't undergo that 24-hour surgery, so I'm only going to pick one of those three problems to fix. But the question... Do I go for the one problem that's causing the majority of the pain? So if I fix this one thing, you're 70% better? Or do I fix the thing that's going to be the easiest, safest surgery? It's actually the least of your problems. It's only going to get you 15% better, but it's going to be the safest strategy for you. And you could go either way. 30-year-old patient. Again, you would think it's easy, but it's not. So maybe that 30-year-old can handle that 24 hours of surgery. So maybe one option is you do all the surgeries you need to fix all three problems and get them better. You're willing to take higher risks. On the other hand, maybe I only need to address two of those problems because that last one has a higher chance of healing on its own because that 30-year-old is younger and has a higher healing potential. Or what if somebody, even if they're 30s, I know what problem number three is, but the surgery is not reliable. I actually am more likely to harm them, and it's important 
that we accept problem number three as something we just can't treat and we just focus on those two. So our goals for tonight were to understand realistic expectations for back pain surgery. There are plenty of diagnoses where spine surgery is a great option. Great means that it's better than not having surgery. Unfortunately, great doesn't mean that you're just as good as the, quote, age expected normal. And importantly, there are some spine diagnoses that we know what's going on, but it just doesn't respond predictably to surgery. The two simple questions to ask your spine surgeon, ask him or her, am I a textbook spine patient? This really helps you understand your diagnoses. They will say, you are a textbook central stenosis patient. You are a textbook scoliosis patient. Reality, not everybody is textbook, but it helps you understand what are the diagnoses I have and are some or all of them going to be treated? And then it's very fair to ask, well, you said I'm not textbook. For anything that's not textbook, how is this going to change what you're doing as a treatment strategy? Or how does it change what my predicted outcomes are? So this helps you understand your specific risk and your specific problems. When a radiologist says there is an L4, L5 disc herniation, how I need to cut and sew to fix that can differ from one patient to the next. So thank you very much for your attention. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.